Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. There's a mouthful of memories in every family, especially if your family's in the food biz. On this week's show, we speak with New Orleanians whose parents and grandparents gave them a passion for food and a love for their community. We begin with writer and philanthropist Randy Fertell, who shares stories of his mother, Ruth U. Fertell. She founded Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, now a worldwide establishment, right here in the Crescent City. Then we learn how Central Grocery, the family-run Italian deli in the French Quarter, has evolved over three generations while keeping the spirit of its founder alive. And finally, we get the story of Barrow's Catfish, which has been a cornerstone of the Holly Grove neighborhood since 1943. Deirdre Barrow Johnson and her husband Kenneth discuss their family's legacy, one that began with a fried catfish sandwich sold from Deirdre's grandfather's barroom door. Get ready for our big family food reunion on this week's Louisiana Eats. Native New Orleanian Randy Fertell is many things. A writer, teacher, and philanthropist with a passionate interest in food projects. But perhaps most significantly, Randy is the son of two legendary parents, Rodney Fertell and Ruth you for tell. His father, Rodney, became known locally as the Gorilla Man when he ran for mayor in 1969 on a single campaign promise, buying a pair of gorillas for the zoo. His mother, Ruth, earned the nickname Empress of Steak after founding the now global Ruth's Chris Steakhouse chain. When Randy Fertell served up to the world his 2011 memoir, the Gorilla Man and the Empress of Steak, it was as bloody and raw as any piece of rare meat his mother ever placed on a sizzling platter. Randy labored over it for years, and the result was a ruthlessly brave and personal examination of generations of wealthy, eccentric fertels who had formed him. The book also provides a fascinating window into New Orleans history and the humble beginnings of his mother's steakhouse empire. When we spoke, Randy explained why he felt this story needed to be told. Well, I love New Orleans, and I uh, had this tiger by the tail, this amazing New Orleans story of my mother's founding of Bruce Chris and my wacky father's run for mayor. And um, 
lot of people know their stories individually. A lot of people don't know that they were once yoked together. You know, it's that this icon of the business world, uh, a woman, was once married to this man who was a little less, who was just as iconic but not quite as revered, was a story I thought should be told. The funny thing about my mom is that she was incredibly reputable. She was a stickler for paying her bills on time, but she surrounded herself with rogues, not unlike my dad. Randy, let's talk about your dad. Your dad had a penchant for trips around the world, and sometimes you accompanied him. I'd like to know how you think that those travels may have expanded your palate. Well, incredibly. I mean, uh, I was very fortunate. He needed a companion. He he inherited money, perhaps too young, uh, when he was 21, and never worked a day in his life, and needed traveling companions that loved to travel. And so when I was 13, I went to Mexico. When I was 15, I went to Europe. When I was 16, I went around the world. And so eating caviar at the Ritz in Barcelona in this grand dining room uh, all by myself uh, was, yeah, that expanded my palate. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I bet it did. (laughs) Yeah. And on that trip uh, in Barcelona, we met Salvador Dali. So that was a, quite an experience, and uh, I got to play with his ocelot, which at 15 was, was pretty cool. I'll, I'll second that. Why was he known as the Gorilla Man? Well, in 1969, um, he ran for mayor on the platform that Audubon Zoo needed a gorilla. His campaign slogan was, uh, don't vote for a monkey, elect for tell and get a gorilla. <laughs> I was there when he discovered gorillas in the zoo in Antwerp in 1965, and he was just mesmerized by me. He, he was convinced that all our problems could be solved if we could just figure out how to communicate with gorillas. And to place this election in time, when it was over, Moon Landrieu was the victor in the race. Yeah, that was 1969, and Moon won it, and, and uh, Dad came in, I don't know, like ninth out of eleven. 308 votes, and then went out and bought two gorillas and gave them to the zoo and announced he was the only mayoral candidate in history who had kept all his campaign promises, even though he'd lost. There are lots of people who um, will tell you that they thought he was pulling everybody's leg. The funny thing is that, number one, he was dead serious about gorillas, and number two, he had this other reason for running for mayor because he was angry at the judge who had adjudicated the um, divorce between him and my mom, and he was angry at Judge Gertler for forcing my father to pay for my college. So he raised his closed fist in open court and said, I'll get you, I'll get you, and Judge Gertler had him bodily removed. And so the campaign was in part his vengeance, and Judge Gertler in his memoir said as much. Yeah, I definitely picked up on the fact that your dad was not a man who you wanted to be your enemy. Well, he enjoyed holding grudges. And usually, eventually, he would tumble on something to be angry about and was rare to forgive and and loved a good lawsuit. And now for your mama, Ruth Fertel, the whole course of her life, I think, was altered that day, May 24th, 1965, when she took possession of the Chris Steakhouse on 
North Broad in New Orleans. Tell us what led up to that day. Well, Mom was... Um, she was a hard-working gal, and they had this litigious divorce that went on for years and years. And finally, it was settled in 1965. And um, she was working then at Tulane Med School as a lab technician. And she didn't think she could afford to send me and my brother Jerry to college on the $380 a month she was making. Little did she know Judge Gertler was about to help her, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Right. Right. Well, that was three years off. But <laughs> that's a good point. So she was looking in the in the want ads and found the three-line want ad, a steakhouse for sale, owner retiring, call this number. And he wanted $18,000. And my mother took that to her banker at Bank of Louisiana. And he said, well, this looks like a good deal, but you know, Ruth, you're going to need some working capital for inventory and stuff. So she was very capable, but she wasn't really ready for prime time. And he helped her through that first hurdle of making a go of it. So it started slow, and she was serving maybe 35 steaks a day. And one day she was complaining to one of her customers about, you know, slack business. And he said, oh, I didn't know you wanted more customers. Like she wouldn't. <laughs> I didn't know you wanted more customers. I work in the oil patch across the river, and all those guys, they're from Texas, and they know a good steak. So I'll bring them over here. Well, the next thing you know, it's the place for lunch for the oil patch, three martini lunches. And um, after that, you know, the politicians follow the money. So now it's the power lunch with the politicians and the uptown people. Before that, it had just been the kind of joint that you stopped on your way back from the track when you had a good day. So she bought Chris Steakhouse, and when it started expanding, she needed to change the name, so she added her name and that New Orleans tradition of stringing names together. So steakhouses in America are a dime a dozen. What do you think set Ruth's Chris apart? Well, they're a dime a dozen in part because of my mother. I once had the experience of chatting with Arnie Morton, whose family founded Morton Steakhouse. And he said, you know, your mother created the prime steak business. I said, well, when did your family start? He said, well, in the 20s. But I'll still tell you that your mother created the prime steak business. And I think what he meant was that she created the market. She created this much broader market. It wasn't this niche market. It was this really desirable thing that everyone aspired to being able to afford, and decided they could afford it, even if they couldn't, <laughs> because it was so desirable. So tell me, how did the enormous expansion take place from the one restaurant on North Broad to really the whole world? Of course, the original was Broad and Ursuline, not Broad and Orleans, and it was this tiny little joint that had been founded by Chris Matalich in 1927, and it only had 17 tables. And in the early 70s, she had a customer, Tom Moran, from Baton Rouge, who would trek down and kept saying, Ruth, if you don't let me open my own Chris Steakhouse in Baton Rouge, then I'm going to kill myself on the highway, and it's going to be on your eternal soul. <laughs> he was a dramatic Irishman. So eventually she you know, got tired of his complaining and said, okay. And so he opened in Prairieville, in the middle of chemical plants, and it was a huge success. It became the big political hang in Baton, for the legislators in Baton Rouge. Later, he moved closer to downtown, but 
Um, from that, you know, next Bob Ruby, who was a radio personality, took a franchise to Houston, and it just started growing. She was very early, I think, in this franchising of America movement, and probably I've never seen anyone on the high end like her. I think she was the first to do high-end franchising. And it wasn't about a big franchise fee. It was about finding the right people who were, you know, going to be warm and welcoming and do the food the way she wanted. Well, if your mother invented the prime steak market, then you literally had a hand in it because one of your early jobs was helping to butcher the meat. You literally wielded the saw, didn't you? Well, I was a underachieving student at Ben Franklin in 1965 when she bought Chris Steakhouse. And so I was kind of looking for reasons not to study. So I started working as a busser and helped her butcher. And back then, there were only two steaks, well, three steaks. There was, they all came off the short loin. There was the porterhouse, and there was the filet, which is the rest of the tenderloin, and the strips. So you had this 30 to 35-pound short loin, which had your entire inventory in it, and you had to cut through the bone with a hacksaw to get the steaks. Uh, that only lasted about a week, and then she went out and bought them. A bandsaw. Um, but I helped her with that. And, um, you know, I was a young man, so it was hard work. But my mother was, you know, five foot two and 110 pounds and throwing around 35 pound loins. So she was she was tough. I am fascinated. And I think this is at the core of some of the most fascinating part of this story, the dichotomy of you working as a busboy and your mom wouldn't let you keep the tips you weren't allowed a tip share and and you were doing bread delivery and mm. you were back in the kitchen helping butcher the meat and then there was this other part of your life where as you just described you're eating caviar in Barcelona with Salvador <laughs> Dali I mean really Randy this is quite a tale <laughs> <laughs> I don't know I think of Fa I don't know if this quite follows but I think of Faulkner who said that the only story worth telling is the story of the heart's conflict with itself and so you know we're all complicated and uh, this is my complicated story randy i want to thank you so much for coming to talk with us on louisiana eats so happy to be here randy fertel author of the memoir the gorilla man and the empress of steak he spoke with Louisiana Eats in 2011, after the book was published. What's the story behind the Mufalata sandwich? Stay tuned, and we'll explore this classic New Orleans invention when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce. 
now celebrating 100 years of hot sauce deliciousness. Always made with just three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal hot sauce. Step out of the heat and into the flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood, straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand, beans done right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Camellia is celebrating their centennial with innovations for today's lifestyle. Beans for two. If a bag of beans is too big for your family, Camellia's New Orleans-style red beans for two and Cajun-style white beans for two has everything needed for dinner in today's smaller households. Learn more at CamelliaBrand.com. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What's the story behind New Orleans' famous mufalata sandwich? The mufalata is said to have been invented in the early part of the 20th century at Central Grocery on Decatur Street in the French Quarter. Founded by Sicilian immigrant Salvatore Lupo, the Italian grocery was located across from the French market. The way the Mufalata origin story goes, vendors from the French market would cross the street at lunchtime, and Mr. Lupo would pile the traditional antipasto ingredients on a round-seated Italian loaf that was called a Mufalata, thus giving the sandwich a name. One of the most important ingredients in a mufalata is the olive salad, which acts both as an integral part of the sandwich as well as the dressing. The olive salad is piled on high, and when the top of the mufalata loaf hits that olive oil-laden goodness, it soaks into the bread. While there's plenty of debate on the best way to serve a mufalata, the version Central Grocery perfected remains an iconic favorite. It's especially popular among tourists who make the pilgrimage to Central Grocery every time they're in town to get a taste of the local specialty. No wonder so many were devastated when the French Quarter landmark was forced to close its doors in 2021 after suffering catastrophic damage from Hurricane Ida. For two years, the owners of the family business have been hard at work rebuilding the property and recently announced they'll be reopening Central Grocery in October or November. But you don't have to wait until then to take a bite out of one of their classic mufaladas. They're available at several local retailers and nationwide through Central Grocery's website, centralgrocery.com. I'm Poppy Tooker, and traditional New Orleans olive salad on a mufalata loaf is real Louisiana Eats.
Tommy Tusa is one of the third-generation owners of Central Grocery, a French Quarter staple since 1906. After growing up in and around the store, Tommy joined the family business in 1970 and continues to work for it today. The Historic New Orleans Collection interviewed Tommy for their series, NOLA Life Stories. Here, he describes the evolution of Central Grocery over the course of its long history. My grandfather came over here as a young man to turn of the century when a lot of immigrants came from Europe, you know, for a better life. He worked in a grocery store for a number of years and then eventually opened up his own store, which was on the corner of Decatur and Ursuline. It wasn't in this location. That was in 1906. 1919, he purchased this property where we are now and opened up the Central Grocery, which is still going today. Back then, when they first opened up the store, everything was in bulk. It's not one package like it is today. There was no supermarkets. There was uh, groceries like this and the fish markets and the fruit stands. And there was several Italian bakeries in the French Quarter at that time. Peddlers and carts would go up and down the streets selling the bread. You know, this was a marketplace, open-air marketplace back then. The farmers and the fishermen would come in early, early in the morning to sell their produce and fish. When lunchtime came, they would dig by these hot breads and come into the store and buy some olive salad and the cold cuts and just sit around and eat it. And eventually, my grandfather and partner decided, all right, let's put it all on the bread and make the sandwich. Call them a filetta sandwich. And that's what they did and just took off from there. That's basically how it came about. It just it evolved. When my dad was in his 20s and 30s, there was a big Sicilian population in the French Quarter. He lived in the French Quarter when he was a kid. But then the French Quarter changed and the families moved out to the city and the suburbs. It was probably 85% local people that came here on a regular basis. Like you go to the supermarket, they would come here every week and buy certain things, pasta, olive oil, cheese. But then it gradually changed, where it got harder to park in the French Quarter. It wasn't very accommodating. Supermarkets came online. It was easier to go to the supermarket. So when that happened, gradually, you know, we lost the local trade. But then the tourists made up for it because we were so popular for the sandwich and we were in a tourist area. Now it's probably 80% tourists and 20% locals. The niche we have is the sandwich and the olive salad. I started bottling the olive salad in the late 70s after I was in here six or seven years. They looked at me like I was crazy. And we sell thousands of jars every week now. Between the sandwich and the, muffle, uh, the olive salad, that's what's the heart of the business today. That's what keeps us going. Other than that, we probably wouldn't be here. We became popular because of the sandwich, but then this is an old-style store, and we kept it that way on purpose. If you modernize this place, you'd lose the charm. Now people come in, and they go, wow, I haven't seen a grocery store like this in years and years and years. So that's part of the attraction, the old-style grocery store atmosphere. We're proud of the business. 
I want to keep it going because my grandfather worked in this business much harder than me. And outside of the, you know, the money we make running a business, it's more of a pride thing for me to keep it going. I feel like I owe it to him and my dad and my uncle, everybody that came before me. So, you know, we'll, we'll keep it going. We'll keep it going by as long as we can. Nothing's forever. This interview with Tommy Tusa was conducted by Mark Cave for the Historic New Orleans Collection. It was produced by our very own senior producer, Joe Schreiner, for NOLA Life Stories. Deandra Johnson of Barrow's Catfish. And I'm Kenneth Johnson of Barrow's Catfish. Deirdre Johnson is the third generation of the family that opened Barrow's Shady Inn, one of New Orleans' longest-running Black-owned restaurants, famous for their catfish. She and her husband, Kenneth, are keeping the family business alive through its latest iteration, Barrow's Catfish, located just blocks away from the restaurant her grandparents founded back in 1943. Like many New Orleans stories, it's not just about a business. It's a love story. It's a history of a family's resilience in the face of tragedy. And it's a story about new beginnings. Deirdre began by telling us what motivated her grandparents to open Barrow's Shady Inn 80 years ago. Well, my grandmother and my grandfather, of course, you knew that that was a very segregated time. And my grandfather had the idea to start a bar for people of color. And that was his intent. It was not to uh, have a restaurant or a catfish restaurant, let alone. But he started the bar and he ended up selling catfish sandwiches out of the back door for 50 cents. It was a select catfish. My grandfather drove every week to uh, a place called the Zalman's and went and got the fresh wild catfish. I'm talking large catfish, as, almost as tall as me when I was a little girl, and they would fillet it all day on Mondays. We had to close down on Mondays because that was our processing day. And all we sold was catfish and potato salad, either bones in or bones out. And it ended up taking off and uh, people grew to love uh, this icon in the community. Then my father uh, continued on the legacy. He took over maybe in the seventies and barrels took off uh, really to the next level kind of worldwide around that time. And uh, he ran it along with a family member and a couple other family members until his passing. Well, prior to him uh, passing, he was grooming my brother. Let me say that uh, my brother would probably have jumped ahead of me and he would have been the third generation. Uh, he passed and my husband and I started dating in the 80s. And when my brother passed, we came in and uh, we groomed. He was groomed by my father and learned everything about the business. What do you think makes Barrow's Catfish so special and so different? 
Well, I'll let my husband continue on with that because uh, he's hands-on with the fish and was groomed by my dad, but it's been the same since my, my grandparents started. We, he learned yeah. everything. I mean, I think the key for us is the fact that uh, we keep the product very close to us. When I say close, I mean, uh, it's very delicate. We take our time. Of course, the special season blend that's been passed down uh, for generations, but just the, the processing. I mean, the processing is, is about two days of how we season, marinate it. And then even from the, the, the frying technique, uh, making sure that there's the right balance of cornmeal to fish, because if it's too much moisture, then the cornmeal is too cakey. And even from the standpoint of the fish itself, you have to have the right uh, balance of water when you're actually seasoning it, because if it's too wet or too dry, that distort the color presentation and also the temperature. <laughs> the temperature has to be right. A lot of the, the new guys, when I bring them in and train them, they say, well, I see you have a temperature gauge on your fryers, but you know, how do you know before? How do you guys know what the temperature was right? I said, well, I was taught we had to stick our finger in the grease. <laughs> <laughs> and they'll look at me like, really? I said, no, nah, that's just a joke. Don't, don't try that, please. <laughs> My dad used to tell that joke. <laughs> But that, to me, is such a beautiful part of your story. Kenneth, tell me the story of how you came into this family. Well, we, you know, we, we uh, hit it off from the beginning. And um, as she stated after her brother passed, I guess we had dated maybe two or three years. And I just, you know, our, uh, I was in college at the time. And her dad, uh, we were having a conversation. He asked me, he said, look, you, you know what's happening? You know, I, he knew I was in college. He said, it could be a great fit. When you're in college, you're broke, you don't have any money. I said, yeah, that's right. He said, well, we need help around here. And I thought it was going to just sort of be a, a, a you know, job in between semesters. And I got in and uh, did well at it. And like anything, whenever I, you know, whatever I do, I try to do my best. And it just one thing led to another. And, and as I said, you know, the rest is history. And he's being very modest because um, when my brother passed, it, of course, it was very devastating. He was only 24 and was my, my father's only son. And so my husband, uh, boyfriend at the time, he just came to my father and he said, um, if it's anything that you need me for, I'm here. I know I can't replace your son, but you know, I'm here for you uh, in any way. And then my father later on came to him and said, you know, I need you. So that really touched my my dad because no one was able to come in and, and do what he did at that time. And how did the marriage proposal happen? So did you did you ask the boss for permission or did the boss have an idea what was going on? He knew. I mean, we, we spent a lot of time together. Um, you know, we studied together. We was you know, together all the time when I, because I also played football in college. So whenever I wasn't practicing and playing, we were together. But I, I did ask, you know, I told him one day that I would love to marry your daughter. And then he he said, well, I thought you guys was already married, but I thought you may have had it low. But you know, because we were always, always together, together, you know. <laughs> so I just tell you, you know, we spent a lot of time, we were, you know, together uh, while we were dating. So we just yeah. knew. You know, yeah, going on 30 years, 30 years this year. Mm-hmm. 
By the 1990s, local newscasters, national food reporters, and big names like Muhammad Ali and Oprah Winfrey made their way to this hidden Holly Grove gem to sample their famous catfish. While Chef Billy Jr. appreciated the business, he had no interest in name dropping. And this was the way my dad was. He never wanted to put celebrity pictures on the wall because this was his motto that everyone is important. Yeah, he didn't want anyone He wanted to the Joes in the neighborhood to feel just as important as any celebrity or anyone that came to buy his product that made him feel good. It didn't matter what your status was, how important you were, how much money you had. If you took the time to pass up all the restaurants and come to buy mine in this little corner, tucked away, then that, that you're a celebrity to me. And we tell our kids that all the time where we close at nine o'clock or we 10 before COVID. Uh, but if it's 9.05 and a customer pulls up, turn that grease back on. Right. We're ready to close, we're closed, right. no. They drove all the way past all these other restaurants, come all the way from Slidell or wherever it was, turn that grease back on. You can wait. I have such a visual memory. I mean, long before Earhart Expressway was built. Came through, yeah. You know, of course, everybody and their brother just had to notice Barrow's Catfish once yeah. it was there. But it was such a a sturdy brick building and the neon sign yeah it was it was a um it was an eye catcher you had to see it even if you didn't know it, what it was especially at nighttime yeah. it was lit up uh with the neon sign and the catfish barrels shady in at the time uh and so it was a white building uh with a courtyard it was a very beautiful property and with the neon and when it lit up it was very, um, very noticeable when you drove by. Yeah, he was actually, um, and my wife has that same gift. I would always, uh, you know, mention to her father, I said, how do you see things in such an abstract way like he did? I mean, just the way he would lay the courtyard out or he would say, well, hey, son, I'm going to watch. I'm going to put this stone here. I'm going to plant this there. Or we're going to do this and do that. And built some of the and tables like, out there. I don't see that. <laughs> you know, I'm a numbers guy. I don't, I don't see that kind of stuff. But I mean, he could just sit back and tell me something. And then a day or two later, uh, I see it after, you know, he's executed it. And, and that's kind of the, the, the talent that and the vision he had for just laying the property out you know, just from the color scheme. Um, and like I said, the, the neon was just beautiful. He took a lot of pride, um, not just in the fish, but everything that represented barrels, everything that he placed his signature on it, it was uh, first class. And, and we strive very hard to continue that legacy, you know, not just with the fish, but everything that we do. Tragically, in 1999, Billy Jr. was walking a block away from his restaurant when he was hit by a car and killed. He was just 59 years old. Suddenly, the next generation was pushed to lead the restaurant into the 21st century. They brought their own ideas to the family business and added a second location on the West Bank. We were... Uh, 
you know, finding our way is one thing to work with a father and to learn. But once you're now responsible for the operation and everyone's relying on you and what it was for us at the time, um, a year before Katrina, we had expanded to the West Bank uh, with the second location. A lot of what people see today was actually what we were testing uh, at that time. What we found that people were coming from the East Bank all the way to the West Bank because they heard of what we were doing. So it was going very well. So we were very excited by that. Uh, our kids were, you know, yeah. a, they were young, good place. Um, they saw the expansion. They were very excited, you know, getting into some merchandising spices. We we're working on that as well. By the summer of 2005, business was booming and things were looking rosy for Deirdre, Kenneth, and their children. Then, as with so many of us, their fortunes reversed on August the 29th, 2005, when the levees failed following the passage of Hurricane Katrina. I was sitting in the hotel and I was watching Anderson Cooper and he said, a breach in the levee. And I'm like, okay, I know what breach means, hmm. but let me pull out my uh, dictionary.com <laughs> and see all the meanings of the word breach. And when he showed Xavier University, that area right there on uh, Washington and Carrollton, and I saw the water level, you know, and I told my wife, I said, we're not going back. It'll be a while. She said, what are you doing? I said, I'm gonna have to put a resume together or something. Yeah, beautiful. they they had a, a diagram. We never forget we were lying in the hotel and there was a diagram of what could happen the next day. And they showed the bowl, the crescent. And my father, I remember immediately at that moment, all my life, I would hear him say, baby, we're in a bowl, we're in a bowl. And I could not understand what that meant. And when I saw that illustration on the news, I had an aha moment like, oh my God, that's what my daddy was saying. We were not planning to leave uh, because time and time again, you live in New Orleans, let's wing it. Let's just trust God and let's lay low and get some food and have a hurricane party, you know? But who would have known that it would have been that devastating? After three decades in business, Katrina shuttered the doors of Barrow's Shady Inn. But it wasn't the end of the family business. When we come back from a short break, our conversation with Deirdre and Kenneth Johnson continues as we learn how they're reintroducing the legacy of the Hollygrove mainstay with its newest iteration, Barrow's Catfish. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, now doing for chicken what they've always done for fish. Fried chicken tenders, wings, sandwiches, and more. 
Louisiana Fish Fry has you covered with a mix specially for chicken. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from Visit the North Shore, where you can discover world-class culinary flavors and so much more. Experience the bounty of the bayou and rich culture from award-winning chefs, soulful mom-and-pop restaurants, extraordinary bakers, and creative mixologists. To learn more, request the Explore the North Shore Visitor Guide for inspirational stories, custom itineraries, and event information at visitthenorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, Louisiana's easy escape, just 40 minutes from New Orleans French Quarter. If you're just joining us, we've been speaking with Deirdre Johnson and Kenneth Johnson of Barrow's Catfish. They're the third generation of family that opened Barrow's Shady Inn, one of New Orleans' longest-running black-owned restaurants. When we left off, the levee failures following Hurricane Katrina had shuttered the expanding family business. With their two kids just entering their preteen years, Deirdre and Kenneth made the tough decision to decamp to Georgia and get out of the restaurant game for a while. At that point, the, the kids, the wel welfare and well-being of our kids became top priority. Uh, we knew even during the time, crime was kind of, you know, a concern in New Orleans. And the schools. So I said, let's just stay here, you know, where we were in Atlanta and just raise our kids, give them the best opportunity. And then said, so once we got them through high school or whatever, we can come back and decide what we're going to do. And we knew eventually that we would come back. Um, it was just a matter of uh, the right timing. Um, all the family that was connected to the business was gone. Mm -hmm. And it would just be my husband and I. So we took that time off for those four years that we were in Atlanta and then came home and uh, waited for an opportunity to open the business again. The placement of the new restaurant was really brilliant you're like you're just right there on Earhart Expressway yeah that was key for us because we had a, a checklist of what we were looking for uh in the right location of course we wanted to come back into Earhart uh area Carrollton area uh, but visibility which we knew we had before but accessibility was very very key for us yeah so we had like a five point uh Checklist, checklist of the perfect place you know people once we put the word out we wanted to reopen you know people was calling us all over the city well we found this spot we were like uh i don't think that's it and i was just strolling online one night and i saw the building she was asleep i woke her up i said look i think i found i think i found the place and she's like where i said it's in earhart off of earhart in Carrollton. and when we walked in she looked at the place she said this is it and we met with our kids, which we knew it was time because they were in, working in education and we were having dinner one day and we was very surprised of their enthusiasm. And, and we say, hey, look, you know, your mom and I think about reopening a restaurant, you know, would you guys be interested? And they were like, yes. So once we got buy-in from them, we knew uh, it was the right time and they've been committed ever since. 
So let's talk about opening the business again. <laughs> when was that? When did you get that business reopened exactly? That was July 6, 2018, when we found uh, the time and the place. We were a little afraid. <laughs> I'm not going to uh, sit here and tell you that it was okay, uh, just a, a walk in the park. But again, after all that time had gone by, we knew that a lot of our customer base probably had died off. Uh, communities change. You have a new generation uh, getting back in the game, you know, 13 years later, starting it over like it was a new business. Uh, we had the brand, but it was like opening up a new business again. So it was a little scary. Um, but my husband and I sit and we shake our head because of the support and the love the first week the line was wrapped around the corner and it brought I, I called my husband outside and I said please come and see he's like what I can't stop working what I was like you've got to come and see this and we came outside and I'm not talking about a line that was moving People stood in line right. for two, three hours until we ran out of catfish and we had to shut down from three o'clock and tell them we were going to reopen at six or seven. And they stood in the heat, didn't want to lose their place, didn't go home and come back. They stood and waited for us to open again because they wanted to be a part of history. So what does the future hold? What's in the hopper for what comes next? Well, we're um, definitely with the expansion right now. It's about putting things in place for the fourth generation. Uh, you know, we don't have grandkids yet, uh, but I'm constantly uh, talking, speaking in the restaurant around the staff My because we want them to understand that <laughs> all the decisions we make are for the fourth, for the and, future. Fifth, fourth yeah. and fifth generation. We wanted to build it enough where everyone could be a part because it's a family business. Our grandparents and father, you know, gave us a very strong brand. Uh, we had the privilege of working closely with them, understanding the history and the things it took, you know, for the brand to be as strong as it, it is. And we're passing that on uh, to our kids. But now that's the plan to, to yeah. expand with a few, yeah. a few more and we, locations. We, yeah, we'd like to do some uh, even you know, step outside the state, you know, we'd like to do some, some, something outside of the city as well. That's always been a hope of us. Well, it has been an honor and a pleasure to spend this time with you all. Thank you so Likewise. much. Likewise. 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 Thank, <laughs> Thank you, you for having, for having us. Having really, us. really appreciate it. That was Deirdre Johnson and Kenneth Johnson third-generation owners of Barrow's Catfish. Since this interview first aired in 2021, Barrow's has expanded beyond its original location on Earhart Boulevard in New Orleans. They now have a West Bank spot in Harvey, and in April, they opened their newest location in New Orleans Central Business District. To learn more, visit barrowscatfish.com. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. 
Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of Louisiana Eats is available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. And don't forget to rate us on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, Visit the North Shore, and Camellia Beans, celebrating their centennial with an innovative new product, Beans for Two. Camellia's new Red Beans for Two and White Beans for Two include everything needed to cook two authentically seasoned bowls of beans, scaled for today's smaller households. Learn more at CamelliaBrand.com. And from D'Agostino Pasta, celebrating our culture with fleur-de-lis, crawfish, and alligator-shaped pastas. All handcrafted in Louisiana, just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. And if you're ready to get your Halloween started, Save Our Cemeteries has some fun for you. Join us at 6.30 p.m. on Wednesday, October 11th at Metairie Cemetery, when I'll be sharing all my favorite haunted restaurant stories. Tickets are $15, and there's a reception and book signing to follow. For more information, visit SaveOurCemeteries.org. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb, with writing contributions from Becky Retz, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.